Tonight I want to speak about samadhi or concentration of mind. The place of concentration or collectedness of mind in the Buddha's teachings is pretty significant in that it is one of the eight path factors. It's also one of the five spiritual faculties, one of the three trainings, and one of the seven factors of enlightenment. So it has its uh, pedigree in all of the right places. And the Buddha said of concentration, or the concentrated mind, he said that there is no limit to the power of a concentrated mind. There's no end to how concentrated or collected the mind can become. He also said, to paraphrase him, that it's better not to think about how powerful a concentrated mind is because it can make you a little bit uh, wacky. So, I won't say too much about it. <laughs> but the word samadhi is usually translated as concentration, but it means collectedness of mind. And because it is collectedness of mind, it is the result of the continuity of awareness. If you want to become concentrated, if, if you are going to collect the mind to concentrate it so that its functions are magnified, then it is increasing the continuity of awareness that serves that role. So what that means is that concentration of mind or collectedness of mind is not dependent on the size of the object that you're paying attention to. Now sometimes in the slowness and the kind of the dropping into practice on a retreat like this, we can't help but zoom in on the smallest flicker of sensation in the breath or in the walking practice. And sometimes the mind is just so tranquil and so collected, it just zooms in. And we can mistake focusing on minute phenomena as samadhi or collectedness of mind. But that's not what samadhi actually means. Collectedness of mind is as if the pieces of the mind which we see in our normal everyday life, that we're just dispersed and scattered. We're multitasking upon multitasking. And unfortunately, maybe in our society, the better you are at multitasking, the better off you are. Unfortunately, that's just in the other direction or the opposite direction of collectedness of mind. Collectedness of mind means that we collect all of the, it's like we collect all the pieces of the mind that are over here in the past, over here in the future, out here into the 
into the TV, the computer, the cell phone, and, and we, we bring them all together, all those pieces. We let go of all that, bring it all together, and direct it to just one thing. Well, imagine if the mind can do all of these things multitasking good enough or fairly well. Imagine what it could do if it was only doing one thing with all of that same bandwidth, so to speak. Samadhi is unbeknownst to us when we begin practice. It's what we usually or often or many of us mistake for the goal of practice because it provides the initial enjoyable aspect of meditation. When there is a little samadhi or as samadhi begins to develop, we really experience a sense of not having to struggle with our practice. The body becomes comfortable. The mind becomes comfortable. The effort becomes smooth and balanced. We feel secluded from all of the disturbances in our practice, all the distractions, all the defilements, all the hindrances. Not apparent. And there's a real ease in practice and a joyful interest in both boring as well as exciting experiences. When our practice is this smooth and the body is so simmeringly happy, it's hard not to think, this is it. <laughs> well, samadhi is the result of good practice. So we don't want to say, well, that's wrong, that's bad, heading in the wrong direction. It is the result of good practice. But as soon as those kind of experiences come up in our mind and in our body, we attach to them. And in that, samadhi becomes the object of defiled state of mind. We attach to it, and then we look for it. You have a little samadhi, one sitting. We come in expecting the next one to be like that. And as you know, there's nothing like one good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> The place of samadhi in the Four Noble Truths is also significant. Now the Four Noble Truths is the Buddha's articulation of what he realized and it includes just the realization that there's suffering, that there is unsatisfactoriness in life. And the Second Noble Truth is that, that unsatisfactoriness is caused by craving or attachment. The third noble truth is that there is a, an end to this unsatisfactoriness. And the fourth noble truth is the path, which we're hearing about on this retreat. The path, the eightfold noble path that leads to the end of all unsatisfactoriness, all suffering, if you will. And we spoke earlier about the practice or the training of sila, living in harmony according to the precepts in order to purify our intention of the defilements, to purify our speech, to purify our behavior. And by doing so, that practice overcomes 
what are known as the transgressive defilements. The defilements of you know, greed, anger, jealousy, envy, uh, fear, that we act out and it impacts others. If we can exercise that restraint by watching our intentions in speaking and acting, then we don't act carelessly in a way that harms others. This leads us to taste the happiness of living in harmony, both with ourselves because of not having regret and remorse and shame over the carelessness of speaking and acting in ways that cause harm, and also harmony with others because we're really not saying and doing that which others can rightly take offense at or feel harmed by. So this sila is not an insignificant practice. It's, it's a major practice in our human relationships for establishing relationships that are harmonious. But as I acknowledged and mentioned before, that even if we live in harmony with one another, being careful of our speech and actions, we might not be doing what we're thinking. And we might not be saying what we're thinking. We might want to. And the mind can be quite tormented even though we are acting saintly or acting at least carefully. And so it is samadhi or the purification of the mind. The purification of the defilements from the mind on a temporary basis that overcomes habitual obsessing. You know, our default setting, if you take an honest look at what your default setting of the mind is, it's anxiety, it's fear, it's restlessness, it's yearning, it's wanting, it's disappointment, it's sadness, it's anxiety, depression. And it's where the mind just goes. The mind just doesn't go to joyful happiness. That's not, its def that's not its default setting for most of us. And so when we're not practicing paying attention to the mind, the default setting takes over, so to speak. We just fall into. And we're kind of in a simmering state of unsatisfactoriness. Well, it is purifying the mind of these obsessing tendencies through establishing mindfulness and three factors of samadhi or samadhi samatha practice is right effort which I spoke about the other night right awareness or right mindfulness and right concentration by purifying the mind at least temporarily of the defilements we get to enjoy what is called mental seclusion. The mind secluded from the torments, from the defilements, at least temporarily. But that's not insignificant, but it's not enough. Because think about it. Think about how hard it is, how much effort and attention it takes to keep 
the defilements at bay, even temporarily. And here we're working at it 24-7, and it's still, it's hard. Even on a long retreat, it's very difficult to keep them at bay. And so we don't really get to experience the relief of knowing that we're free of those defilements until we practice insight. Until we practice the development of knowledge or wisdom through insight practice that purifies our understanding. Morality purifies our speech and behavior. Concentration purifies our mind. Insight purifies our understanding. And once our understanding is purified of the defilements, we don't go back, we don't forget, we don't re-engage in wrongly understanding that leads to suffering. But to get there, we need to develop samadhi. We need to develop this momentary purification of mind through establishing mindfulness. The operant factor of mind in the development of samadhi is ekegata. And it means the mind gone to one point. And it occurs as a factor of mind in all, in every moment of consciousness. But most of the time it's rather weak and it's not very well developed and so we don't get the experience of concentration or collectedness. It is ethically neutral, meaning collectedness of mind or power of mind can be used both wisely and unskillfully. As I mentioned the other night, or, uh, yeah, I mentioned the other night, the thief in the night who is being so careful not to make any noise or wake the barking dog or the potentially barking dog as he or she, you know, does their nefarious uh, illegal things is very concentrated. But because the motivation is unwholesome, it's greed or it's aversion, it's delusion for sure, then that concentration takes on the morality of the intention and it too is unwholesome, unskillful. On the other hand, when we practice uh, right awareness and develop right or skillful, wise concentration, then it is all wholesome. And the power, as I said, of a concentrated mind is just unfathomable, infinite. Every moment of mental life with developing this kind of, of concentration is a karmic act. What you think is a karmic act. Thinking is a karmic act. Speaking is a karmic act. Acting is a karmic act. And the more powerful the intention, the more collected the mind, the more frequently you do it, the more powerful the result. If you want to enjoy good karmic results in the future, collect your mind repeatedly on wholesome actions, wholesome topics, if you will. The characteristic of the collected mind or concentration is 
non-distraction. We should say, not easily distracted. Where the mind feels stable, it's unwavering, it isn't easily pulled off of its intended object. And the function of concentration or samadhi is to collect the mind. It's to bring all of the capacities of mind to bear on this object at this moment and not to be internally multitasking but internally collected and single-mindedly focused. It is samadhi that gives us that feeling of being stable, kind of compacted, not in a tight way, but just kind of pulled together and contained where we feel whole and unified, both in the body and in the mind, not dispersed, distracted. And the way that we can sometimes glimpse it, and some of you may have had experiences like this, the mind gets so collected that it makes a unified whole out of disparate phenomena. Now what I mean is, you can be walking on this path uh, from the hall down to the kitchen, and you know they have that loose gravel on the path, and in spite of what you might have thought at some point, the pattern of those pieces of gravel on the pathway is not organized. And yet sometimes when the mind gets really collected and you're walking and your eyes are gazing at that gravel on the pathway, it seems to be laid out in just this unbelievably complex, unified pattern that is so apparent. That's concentrated mind. Or you look out through the, for you look out through the branches of the trees in the forest and you read a pattern there that is just so apparent. It's like all of these disparate things get unified into a single meaningful thing to the concentrated mind. Now Deepama was an Indian woman who was a student of Manindra's, one of our teachers, and she was an extraordinary uh, yogi, yogini. She just had tremendous uh, concentration and tremendous insight early in her practice, very early in her practice. Well, Jack Engler, a friend of ours in, in, in Boston, for his PhD thesis, he did research on people who had been identified as having attained first, second, and third stage of enlightenment. And he offered them a battery of Western psychological tests, Rorschach tests, personality tests, all, all kinds of things like that. And then uh, compared them uh, to the rest of us, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave, uh, he gave uh, Deepama the Rorschach test. Now you know the Rorschach test is the inkblot test. And there's these 10 cards, and the first one starts out a little black and white, little fold in the paper, looks like butterfly and a few other things, but when taking the inkblot test, you are asked, what do you see? And you, you know, depending on y your mind, you'll see things reflected in this inkblot, which is just an inkblot. 
And you, you know, where do you see it? You see this, you see that, you see a foot, a hand, a bird, a butterfly. Okay, where, where? Okay, there, there, there. So, and after they've exhausted your, you've exhausted your powers of imagination, uh, they move on to the second card. And as you go through the ten cards, they get increasingly more complex, more colorful and more complex. Well, when they analyzed, when they had an independent person analyze Deepama's Rorschach test, they realized that here was a Rorschach testee giving an answer, or giving um, an answer to the Rorschach that they had never seen before. Never. Out of all the hundreds of thousands, probably, of Rorschach tests given. And what was so distinct about her Rorschach test was that over the course of describing what she saw in those ten cards, she told the story of the Dharma, where everything that she saw was related and connected to everything else in that story. Everything was connected. There wasn't any element of any of those ink blots that wasn't part of the whole that she told them about. That's the power of a concentrated mind. That's what a concentrated mind does. It makes a whole out of totally disparate things. Unique among Rorschach testes up to that point. The nearest thing they found to it was the Rorschach test given to a Native American shaman who did the same thing, something similar, told the story of his people. Our minds have this capacity. Our minds have the ability to bring it all together, to really pull it all together, to make sense of, of everything that's happening to us in the world, outside, and to weave it into the whole if there is the collectedness of mind with right understanding. Samadhi manifests as peace of mind. When we become concentrated, when the mind becomes concentrated, we feel peaceful. And it opposes restlessness, agitation, and uncertainty. Now, the cause or the proximate cause for this collectedness of mind is not effort, it's not squinting, it's not, it's not ratcheting down, it's happiness. Happiness. When the mind is happy, it becomes concentrated. It becomes collected. The Buddha said of happiness, he said, even as the teacher teaches the Dhamma to him or her, that monk experiences the meaning and the Dharma. When he or she gains such experience, gladness arises. When he or she is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm, and one common body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated, and this is the first base of liberation. And when he or she dwells diligent, ardent, and resolute here, his or her unliberated mind comes to be liberated. 
happiness. Not through struggle, not through striving, but it's through happiness of mind, happiness of body. So samadhi is the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path. Three elements, right effort, which I spoke about the four right efforts the other night, right awareness or wise awareness, mindfulness, which we've been practicing repeatedly here, and when or to the degree that mindfulness is continuous, collectedness of mind or samadhi occurs. Now, I'm just going to speak briefly about mindfulness. There's no end to what can be said about mindfulness. But I just want to point to a couple of elements. To be mindful of a moment's experience, you have to connect with it. You have to touch it. You have to be in contact with the object of your meditation, the object of your mind. It can be the breath, the nostrils, or the belly. It can be a thought like loving kindness. It can be any sensation, any, it can be most anything, but you have to touch it with the mind. And by touching it and sending your mind repeatedly to touch this object, to connect with this object, it brightens the mind, it freshens the mind, it puts aside sloth and torpor. Because in order to touch this object, you have to recognize it. Your perception gets clear. And it takes, sometimes it takes repeated, sending your mind to this object to, to, to get there, to actually touch it, and to, to, to clarify your perception of it. But not only is touching required, but sustaining the touch is required. You know, if you take, if you take one, your index finger and you just place it lightly on the back of your other hand, you can, you can realize that touching is occurring. But it's difficult to know whether you're touching a board or an apple or your hand. But as soon as you start sustaining or rubbing your touching fingers on the back of your hand, then you begin to feel the texture. And it is this feeling of the texture that removes the doubt in your mind as to what you're touching. So too with your mind. When you send your attention to the object of meditation and you touch it and you sustain your attention on it so that the attention rubs it, you have no doubt about what it is you are experiencing. The touching puts aside sloth and torpor. The rubbing or the sustaining of attention puts aside doubt. Now these are two of the major hindrances in practice. Touching and sustaining develops or is the kind of the, the cause of mindfulness. Of course, it doesn't happen without intention, attention, energy, and a whole host of other factors of mind. But it is primarily the touching and the, and the rubbing that gets the mind in touch with and sure of what's it, what is it, it is experiencing. This clarity of recognizing the texture 
of the experience is the beginning of insight. Because the clarity of knowing the texture of the experience is its unique nature. The back of your hand is different than an apple. It's different than a board. It's different than the floor. Each one has its own unique flavor, its own unique texture. And so too do all of the other experiences we have. Fear has a different texture than depression. Depression has a different texture than excitement. Excitement is different than joy. Joy is different than anxiety. Anxiety is different than jealousy, and jealousy is different than envy. Each of these mental states has its own flavor, its own texture, its own unique nature, which is what is known through or in the beginning of the practice of insight. When we initially get in touch with and sustain our attention on our experience, we overcome the defilements, at least momentarily, where the mind is secluded and we can begin to to uh, know our experience more clearly. Now, the mind as a whole, the mind's function is to know. That's what the mind does. It knows. It knows sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, ideas. It knows everything. Without a mind, there's no knowing. If you want to know what a mind, uh, what a mind of no knowing is like, you look at a corpse. Now, there's a body just like yours, just died. There it is. It's just like yours. But it doesn't hear anything. It doesn't see anything. It doesn't feel anything. It doesn't think anything. There's no knowing going on in that body because there's no mind there. So everything that's going on in this body, in this mind, in this environment that is known, is known by the mind. It's not known by the body. The body doesn't know anything. The mind knows. When the mind can do its work, of knowing, unhindered, no sloth and torpor, no doubt, no anxiety, no restlessness, no aversion. It's just doing its thing. It's just knowing, 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 knowing accurately. It takes great delight. The mind loves to do that. That's what it does. I mean, it's like it's unhindered. It's, let, it's, it's free of the defilements. And when the mind is free of its defilements, it is just ecstatic. It just loves to know what's going on, even if what is being known is painful. There's this paradoxical experience in meditation. It's something like getting deep tissue massage. It's excruciatingly painful and feels exquisitely good. Well, the same thing can happen in meditation. When the mind is lit up, and unhindered and doing its knowing so joyfully, it can be experiencing painful things happily. Now, this is kind of beyond our kind of rational, logical thinking, but you probably all have had a taste of it. This joy or this zest, this interest is the factor of mind most responsible for putting aside aversion. Think about it. If you're joyfully, ecstatically experiencing anything and everything, 
what's to be averse about? There's nothing. And so aversion just has no footing in the mind that is truly free of the hindrances or, or momentarily free of the hindrances. But that joy, that excitement, that ecstatic kind of touching of life is a little overbearing. <laughs> it gets a little intense. It's like mainlining, you know, <laughs> ecstasy or something. It's pretty intense. And thankfully, thankfully we can make that the object of our meditation and chill out and just put ourselves on a drip feed. <laughs> you know, we would just get a little drip every now and then of, of happiness. And this is the, the, the fourth concentrative factor of mind. Connecting is the first, sustaining is the second, joy is the third. The fourth concentrative factor of mind is, is sukha, happy comfort of mind and body, where things mellow out. <sighs> yeah, where things just get soft and okay. Whatever's going on, it's okay. It's just okay. You know, everything is so soft. Everything is like wrapped in cotton batten. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, like no matter what you're bumping up against in your mind, it's okay. It's like, it's like that. This, this, this happy comfort of mind and body uh, overcomes your restlessness because what's to be anxious and restless about? Everything is so soft and so comfortable. It's, it's really pleasant. Now, surprisingly, you don't get attached to that because the mind is still knowing its things. And if, if attachment was about to reach out and hang on to that, mindfulness would notice it and put it aside. When the mind is so happy, experiencing everything is just soft, wrapped, wonderful okayness, what is there to desire besides that? It is the collectedness of mind on this object in this moment, then the mind is totally at ease and comfortable with that. It's not thinking about anything that it even imagines could be better. And so there's no attachment, there's no yearning, there's no longing, there's no anticipating anything. And this one-pointedness on the object like that puts aside the fifth hindrance of attachment. These five factors of mind, connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort, and one-pointedness, are the factors most responsible. They're called the, the, the concentrating, concentrative factors of mind. It's what we work with in our practice. The Buddha said, the mind is difficult to control which we all can probably agree with. The mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It is good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. We know the untamed mind that is just going here and there, wherever it wants to, and often contrary to our own best interests and wishes, is a source of great distress. But when the mind is tamed, when the mind is kind of controlled by samadhi, it's a source of happiness.
Now, there's a big difference, or there's a big difference made between the two paths of practice that either lead to tranquility, jhanas, concentration, and that kind of uh, absorption, or the kind of mindfulness that leads to the concentration and the development of insight and wisdom. The difference, I want to try to explain it to you so that you're not conflating experiences of concentration, mistaking it for development of wisdom. It's not apparent. It's not easy to know the difference when we first start practice. It's just not. Because when you get these kind of concentration, calm, excited, ecstatic, happy, blissful experiences, you think, you, you can't help but think, right on, got it, okay, been there, done that, what's next? And that's not it. That's just not it. In the practice of insight, this point in practice where by observing, even just observing the breath, if you just really get good at observing the breath at the nostrils or belly, you can arouse all of these very exquisite, uh, well, as Saito Upandita calls them, spiritual goodies. There's spiritual goodies. There's excited spiritual goodies. There's tranquil spiritual goodies. There's all kinds of spiritual goodies. And they come because of the, the, the collectedness of mind, the continuity of awareness. It's not for some people to experience that and some not. Any mind that is developed into continuous mindfulness will experience that. It's not like you can do it and you can't. It's, it's mind. It's impersonal. If the mind is developed, it will be like that. Now, the other kind of impersonal, unfortunately, uh, fact is that everyone gets attached to spiritual goodies. Everyone, everyone gets attached to them. Because it is such a struggle to get the mind concentrated, collected, and calm that when we get these spiritual goodies, we feel such a relief that we get attached. You need a teacher here. You need a teacher that really understands the difference between the effects of samadhi or concentration and the path of developing insight. And only one who has been through it, who really knows the difference because they've detached, they've let go of, or they've been able to see through their own attachment to these spiritual goodies, are able to, to guide you. Everyone gets caught here. Uh, I think it's universal. Yeah. And it takes a skillful guide to, to get you to acknowledge that, yes, this is the result of good practice, but it now has become a hindrance. Your attachment to it has become a hindrance. The way to develop insight is to keep recognizing the unique texture of each moment. 
and using my sign language with my hands. When any spiritual goody arises, rather than absorbing into it, we continue to be aware of it. Just aware of, oh yeah, calmness is being known. Joy is being known. Oh, ecstasy is being known. Oh, bliss is being known. You know, just whatever. Delight is being known. Happiness, exquisite, subtle happiness is being known. Just another, it's just another thing being known. If you make more of it than that, you're attached. It's hard to do. But, you know, with persistence, you can really disentangle your awareness from these experiences and just keep noticing them. And then they lose their, they lose their fascination. You know, maybe you don't want to lose your fascination with them. That's the problem. <laughs> but that's what's got to happen if you want to move beyond this kind of attachment to really develop uh, insight knowledge. Insight knowledge is the moment-to-moment intuitive realization of three things. Everything's changing. Now, do you know that everything's changing? <laughs> we, all, we all know everything's changing. You know, we, we know seasons change, people change, people grow up, get older, the economy changes, political systems change, everything changes, we know that. I mean, just the weather today, from sun to rain to snow to hail to like, my God, it, everything changes. But when we get to tranquility, ecstasy, bliss, and, and equanimity, we don't want that to change. <laughs> and insight is when we really see, when we, we are experiencing not only the unique flavor of that moment of bliss, but we also realize in that moment that it's impermanent. Not only do we realize it's impermanent, we realize it's really not satisfactory. It's not okay. It's not as be-all, end-all as we imagined because it's unstable and impermanent. It just can't it just won't be there for you all the time. And so it's unsatisfactory. And not only that, you can't make it happen when you want it to. Bummer. <laughs> but when there is this realization of these three facts in every moment of experience, you don't hang on. You don't hang on to what you know to be impermanent. Not that you know it to be impermanent, but you're realizing it in this very moment. It's here and gone. What's to hang on to? Or you realize that it's unsatisfactory. Why hold on? Or you realize it's due to conditions beyond my control. What's to hold on? How can you hold on to something that is caused by something else? These realizations of the three insights into impermanence unsatisfactoriness and the selfless character, we'll call it, anicca, dukkha, anatta. This is the path of insight. This is the path that we're on. The distinction between samadhi for tranquility and samadhi for insight 
is important. We, don't, we won't let you get stuck in samadhi for tranquility here. We'll recognize it and keep you moving, keep you trying to recognize, keep you seeing the changing nature of everything. And we do that by um, pointing out the fact that you can't make it happen. You can't control it. You can practice. You can do the best you can. But you really don't know what's going to happen next day. We also ask you to put your excited mind down. Not to depress or suppress, but to realize the excited mind undermines awareness. When you get excited, when you get really excited about anything, even your own meditative experience, it undermines your awareness, the continuity of your awareness. Put that excited mind down. The other thing is to have patience. Have patience that, yes, these spiritual goodies are good, they're enjoyable, but there's something better ahead. Have patience to and trust to let go of this without anticipating or expecting, but continuing the practice just to discover what could possibly be better than this. In order to develop that level of samadhi, continuity of awareness, it's really important to be mindful, not only in retreat, not only in your hour or day uh, sitting practice at home or whatever, but as continuously as possible. In the monastery <laughs> I was in, in in Burma, they used to say, oh, at least, mi mindful at least 90% of the time. <laughs> well, I'll let you figure out, calculate how, how mindful you were today. But it's at least 90% of the time in order to establish the equanimity, the balance of mind in all things, towards all things, that is the, uh, what would you call it, the, uh, the foundation upon which the mind can realize the unconditioned. <coughs> Inclining the mind towards developing concentration, patience, persistence, making your mind happy but not excited. These are the ways in which we support the continuity of uh, insight concentration. And it is this insight concentration, or insight samadhi, that is the uh, purification of mind of the defilements. Wang Po, Chinese Zen master, back in the eight, 800s, said, this pure mind, free of defilements, this, this pure mind of concentration, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It's all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, self-existent and uncreated. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind is a jewel beyond all price. Whatever it costs you 
to attain this jewel, to attain this pure mind. It's worth it. That's what he's saying. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.